Happy Eastertide, Roxy. Will you be attending Beauty and the Beaster? What is a Beaster? And are we allowed to say that? If you are getting ready to celebrate Easter at Church of the Rock in Winnipeg, you have to say it. I'm looking at the website. This is a real thing. Mm -hmm. This church puts on wacky Easter performances. They've done Pirates of the Galilean, Mm -hmm. The Lion King of Judah, The Wrath of Khan, (laughs) where Captain Kirk dies and is resurrected. My Star Trek history is vague. The same. I think they should do Harry Potter and the Horcrux of Thorns. Wow. That might be too far. (laughs) But is it too far when we're doing Beaster? (laughs) From Religion News Service, this is Safe by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women living long and looking to prosper here in New York City. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief, best-selling author, national speaker, and public historian, Jamar Tisby. They've answered every question definitively such that there's no more room for mystery, for questioning, for curiosity. That rigidity is really what I think hampers the witness of evangelicals today. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. We should probably get a little bit more serious <laughs> uh, than what Beaster suggests, because when this episode drops, we will be entering Holy Week. For Christians, you can't get more somber than the week of Jesus's death and resurrection, eventually. I do love the way that the next few days in the church calendar tell the Christian story, starting with Maundy Thursday, followed Mm. by Good Friday, then Holy Saturday, then Easter Vigil, and then also Easter Sunday. It's a lot of church. I love this week as well. It's it's not really the way that I grew up with Easter. We just kind of did Palm Sunday, skipped to Easter Sunday. Mm -hmm. But now that I'm part of a more liturgical church tradition, I love Holy Week. Me too. It's really, it's beautiful. It's meaningful. It takes you through the story in a very palpable way. It leads you to like the darkness of Good Friday and it Mm -hmm. lingers there. It doesn't just rush past that to the Easter Bunny. And it really does make Easter Sunday feel so much more momentous Mm -hmm. to have gone through just everything about that week. Like I love the foot washing on Maundy Thursday. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I did that and I was washing, it was at the Orlando Cathedral, Episcopal Cathedral, and I was washing the feet of this woman who was probably in her early 80s. And it was just this moment, like I wasn't around older people that often, you know, most of my circle in Orlando was pretty young. It was Mm -hmm. this great moment of intergenerational like service and humility and community. Yeah, there's a way that the liturgy like puts your body in a Mm. in a position to actually understand the truth of what is being taught. Like, yeah. Getting down on your knees and washing someone's feet is incredibly humbling. You're, you know, you're in front of somebody serving them in such a physical way. And it's, it's, um, 
intimate mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't feel like we have a lot of that in church typically or in other parts of life. Yeah. Now that you say that, I'm thinking about just how embodied the whole season is in a way that maybe is unique to the church calendar. Like even it starts with Ash Wednesday, you know, and being reminded that like this body will die turn back into dust and having that like physical mark put on your forehead. And then Lent is like generally you're fasting, you're sacrificing from something physical. Mm -hmm. So it affects your life in an everyday kind of embodied way. And then Holy Week starts with such a physical act. That's interesting. I imagine that the physicality of high liturgy or high church liturgy, Mm -hmm. let's call it, is one of the reasons that as adults, we have both gravitated to those kinds of churches. Mm -hmm. I think growing up, faith could often feel like purely head knowledge. Like the point of Christian faith and practice was to get the right ideas in your brain about God. And of course, there is more left brain teaching that is part of a service, but it does feel more holistic in its teaching and more engaging of the emotions of the story that we're trying to live into. Yeah. I mean, I think the most physical that church really got for me growing up was like worship, right? Like the worship music. Yes. Like the embodiment of that was very vertical and it was praise, right? It was it was joy. It was something that was intended to be transcendent in this incredibly positive way and take you out of Mm. almost take you out of your body, not Mm -hmm. keep you in your body. Even as you were using your body, like this idea of like transcendence through the music felt like it took you away, not that it like really rooted you in your body. The way that I think some of the the liturgy of, especially maybe of Holy Week, really roots you in your body. Even the like Good Friday, like walking the stations Mm. of the cross. Several years ago at an Episcopal church in the Chicago area, I signed up for part of the all-night vigil after oh, Monday, Thursday. I went to that once at that <laughs> I, church. I did it once. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I did this. I thought it'd be interesting. Uh, I signed up to arrive at the church at 4 a.m. and sit alone in the church building for an hour and wow. keep watch, watch and just sit. I mean... I don't even remember if I prayed. I'm sure I was trying to be prayerful, but there was something about being in that space in that time with the host mm-hmm. that brings you to into the story. The host being the bread and wine. Yes. Wait, or is the host just the bread? Well, <laughs> the people who know, people listening who know the liturgy better than I do would say that there's something very specific that happens after the Maundy Thursday service where a portion of the bread and the wine like goes away or it's put into some kind mm-hmm. of special container. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not from the container store. Um, <laughs> it was so interesting. It was almost surreal, but it 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 put me in the emotion of Jesus in the garden. Mm laboring through prayer, asking God to take away this cup, being alone, and then you are invited to sit watch with him. Did you get sleepy like the disciples (laughs) in the garden? I probably did. It was, I mean, just getting up in the middle of the night to pray is an experience in and of itself, but then like going to drive to the church and sitting in this space and in the sanctuary, just you and the host. Mm -hmm very otherworldly and profound. Wow.
What do you say, Roxy, to something that I'm sure we both have heard many times and maybe heard growing up, which is that the problem with high liturgy or high church liturgy or high churches is that they ask church members, worshipers to go through the motions. Like Mm, all of this mm -hmm. is rote. It's Mm -hmm. formal. It doesn't mean anything because the script is there for you. This isn't spontaneous. It's not personal. It's not coming directly out of your heart. Yes. Somebody else wrote it a long time ago. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm laughing because of course I, well, we, we know what I think of that, (laughs) but yeah. What do you, what do you think of that? maybe suspicion of high churches. Man. I mean, I grew up with that and I carried a lot of that in with me to my first experiences at actually the church in Chicago that you're mentioning, which was my first high church experience. Um, And then when I moved to Orlando, I started attending the Episcopal Cathedral there and that's where I became confirmed Episcopalian, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I remember carrying that in with me and sort of standing at a distance from the liturgical goings on of that church in the Chicago suburbs and being sort of cynical about it from the beginning, you know, like, oh, this is all just scripted. Uh, Do the people on, you know, stage, (laughs) do the people up in the altar, do they even mean any of this or are they just reading it and they do it every week? They, you know, serve the host every week and go through the Eucharistic rite every week. And, oh, everybody's standing now because they were told to stand and everybody's kneeling now because they were told to kneel. And now we're just confessing because we're supposed to. They're all And does anybody mean this? Exactly. And I did. I I felt that for a while until it really got under my skin. And I started, Mm -hmm. I started being moved by it every week. And I started noticing the ways that I would anticipate certain parts of the liturgy and Mm -hmm. the comfort it would give me to hear the thing that I had heard the week before and the week before and the week before. And I started to think of it almost in the way that you think about like eating your favorite foods over and over for breakfast or something or like the the sort of rituals of of dinner and eating. And maybe so, you don't remember every one of them. Maybe you were bored with certain foods, but there's also like a way that even when you're not thinking about it or loving it, it's nourishing you. And mm-hmm. even when it's just like routine, oh, I just need to eat this food, right? Um, Mm -hmm. It's the same lunch I had yesterday, but I'm going to eat it. Like it starts to nourish you. And then sometimes it like really tastes amazing. But regardless, it nourishes you. And Mm. I started to think of it a little bit that way. And I just started, I think it surprised me the way that I came to understand it more every week. You know, like, I mean, it shouldn't Mm. surprise me. You're hearing it every week, right? And instead of it getting tired of it, I started to get it. Mm-hmm. and absorb it because I would hear it differently or I would experience it differently depending on where I was at or what I was thinking. I mean, now I just, I get sad if something changes a little in mm-hmm. the service or I like miss, I miss it. Like if I miss a week, I'm like, oh man, I really miss communion. Like I feel like my week didn't quite contain everything it needed to. Yeah. I like what you said about the the roteness, quote unquote, actually being something that you end up liking, like the routine Mm -hmm. or the ritual of it actually being part of the appeal, that there's something that you can count on hearing every week. And I don't, some of the prayers of the liturgy, I don't think you can improve upon. Mm. Like part of me just thinks there's nothing that I could pray Mm -hmm. (laughs) that would better express either like confession or Mm -hmm. 
praying for other people, praying for the world, preparing for communion. It's comforting to me that I actually don't have to come up with the words week in and week out. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm definitely bored sometimes, but then I'm like, yeah, but why is boredom, like, why is not being bored the point? Oh, yeah, right. I, I know that sounds like crotchety, but what I hear in part of the critique of high church liturgy being wrote is that it's not spontaneous and interesting and like spirit led. (laughs) I mean, of course I do think it's spirit led, but like, yes, that would be the charge. And I'm like, what if, what if spontaneity is not any more authentic quote unquote Mm -hmm. than going through the, the ritual and the liturgy you can participate in the praise worship spontaneity also because that's what everybody else is doing. And then you feel this weird pressure to raise your hands because you don't want people to think you're not spirit led. And the best way to know if someone is spirit led is the extent to which their arms are raised. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that the critiques are all unfounded. I know friends who grew up in high churches, particularly Catholic or Episcopalian, who would say, you know, I never heard that Bible story before, or I didn't understand this about theology because like that, that wasn't emphasized in my church, you know? Right. So I think there are ways that I understand that critique. And I think there's ways that we can learn from each other. Um, and there's value in different forms of worship. Mm -hmm. Um, but I am not interested in wholesale dismissing you know, mm. a liturgy because, oh, other it's people not wrote personal. The other prayer. people wrote it, you know? Um, yeah. Other people wrote recipes that work really well. <laughs> I'm going back to the food metaphor. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> the, okay, the, the, the liturgy is like Julia Child's recipe for beef bourguignon. And you have to say it like that. I've just never figured it out how to say it. I know. Or make it. <laughs> I, I haven't really figured out either. But like, it's a it's a tradition because it's really good. Yeah, you know? and you can and- spontaneously make it. Maybe it'll be good sometimes. <laughs> right, but it's not an authentic expression of myself if I don't figure it out on my own. I think there are people who probably think that way about their cooking, but um, I'm not one of them. So I like a recipe. Bad things happen when I try to do it on my own. <laughs> I have a feeling that our guest today appreciates the liturgy for many of the same reasons we do. He's also in charge of the Episcopal Church, so it would be kind of weird if he didn't. The Most Reverend Michael Curry is the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, the American branch of the Anglican Communion. No small task. It's not the institution that ultimately matters. Is that community gathered around this Jesus and his teachings and his way of love and his way of life? That's what matters. Reverend Curry joined us to discuss the future of the church, his leadership style, and Jesus. A lot of Jesus. Our conversation with Reverend Curry is coming up right after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. From A to Z, the Anglican Church to Zoroastrianism, 
RNS covers it all. And if you like what we're doing at Saved by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review. It goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. You can also email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you and we definitely reply. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Well, as we know from RNS's stellar reporting, if I say so myself, all is not PG Keen in the global Anglican communion, which includes the Episcopal Church. There are many divides and factions, including over same-sex marriage and ordination, which some leaders are trying to hold together. One such leader is our guest today. Michael Curry is an author, activist, and the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church. He's the first person of color to serve in the role and has served at a time of deep rancor and division in the global Anglican communion. On a lighter note, he also officiated Harry and Meghan's wedding. Hey, hey. So thank you so much for being with us this morning, Bishop Curry. We're really grateful to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be with you. At the at the end of our um, 2022 season, we named some of our dream guests for this year, and you were one of them. So we're very really? excited. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Oh. We and Stephen Colbert. Oh yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> they pair us together normally. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's great. So when we release this episode. We will be heading into the centerpiece of the Christian calendar, Good Friday, all the way through Easter Sunday. Roxy and I both attend liturgical churches where we we take the whole Holy Week journey. So do you have a favorite service or part of the Holy Week liturgy? You know, it, it's funny. I, no one's ever asked me that before. But, you know, I have to admit that what I've come to appreciate has been the Monday Thursday or Holy Thursday liturgy that that an Episcopal church includes foot washing or at least makes that mm-hmm. that possible and I've been involved in foot washing I mean not only on Monday Thursday itself but on some other occasions and it's become a, a spiritual practice that I, I didn't grow up with foot washing mm-hmm. but I've been in occasions where um well, well, I'll give you one good example. When the Archbishop of Canterbury gathers us every couple of years or so, um, a few years ago, we were, um, uh, there was estrangement. Yeah. Um, and some of that was because of us and the Episcopal Church, uh, who believed that marriage equality is related to baptismal equality. And there were real tensions. Mm-hmm. And after a week of working at that, we, we had a Eucharist in the crypt of Canterbury Cathedral. So you're talking about an old, old, old mm-hmm. building. And, and we took off our shoes and socks standing on that cold stone floor <laughs> and washed each other's feet. Wow. And I have to say that act, that practice of practicing 
humility before the other, even the other with whom you may be alienated or disagree with, Mm -hmm. that for me has become a new insight into Christianity as somebody who grew up in Christianity. And, and, And I've realized that is a discipline and a way of life that is profoundly different than arrogant Christianity. Militant Christianity, mm-hmm. <laughs> macho Christianity. Yeah. That is the way of Jesus on a donkey on Palm Sunday, not Pilate on a war horse. That's a message of Holy Week that gets can get missed. Mm-hmm. So we're going to come back to the aforementioned divisions in the Episcopal Church, <laughs> of which you are... Oh, we are intimately familiar. Get excited! Get excited! But we'll 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 get to that uh, hill later. So, but you've talked about your upbringing, and it sounds like you did not grow up in the Episcopal Church. So, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and early faith formation, and then how did you eventually find yourself in the Episcopal Church? Well, I actually did grow. I did. I did grow up in the Episcopal Church, but I grew up in a kind of a hybrid context. Um, um, my dad was an Episcopal priest. So I grew up, you know, with that world. Um, and my maternal grandmother, who was a major force in in my sister in our in our lives, um, what was a dying world Rock Rib North Carolina Baptist. Um, and and so I grew up with that kind of cross fertilization, mm-hmm. but in neither tradition was foot washing a part of it. And there, there are there were foot washing uh, Baptists, so I didn't grow up with that in either tradition. Hmm. Nor was there much discussion of the role of humility in in the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Probably because people were afraid that if you do that, you're you might slip into humiliation. Mm-hmm. Whereas humility is about real humanity, like like the Shakers say, to turn around right. I'm I'm curious. A few minutes ago, you you kind of juxtaposed this humility with what you described as like macho Christianity or an <laughs> aggressive Christianity. It mm-hmm. seemed like maybe you had something in mind when you were talking about that. I'm wondering where you're seeing like when when you're thinking about that contrast, even why that's what comes to mind. Where you're seeing that sort of express itself right now in terms of like this macho Christianity or this Christianity that's trying to prove something? Uh, well, I mean, uh, obviously, easily uh, January the 6th, mm-hmm. uh, a couple years ago, you saw expressions of that um, in kind of white Christian nationalism on display at the Capitol when it was being besieged. I mean, how are you going to mm-hmm. conquer a Capitol building and and beat up people? And you can do that in the name of Jesus Christ? Really? Mm. <laughs> You see what I mean? I mean that that is just that that that's a mindset that doesn't those two don't go together. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, they they just don't. No matter how you cut it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so I mean that was an obvious um, display. But but there are other forms that that it takes sometimes um, in in more extremist traditions. But sometimes they're innocent forms of it. Mm-hmm. Where we, you know, we speak about conquering. You don't hear it as much now. Conquering the world for Christ. Well, now wait a minute. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when folks say stuff like that, are they really talking about conquering the world for Christ and His love, His way of love, or are they talking about conquering the world for Christ, which is a guise for our ego and our mm-hmm. imperialism? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't talk about conquering the world for nobody. Mm. You know, um, unless it means the conquest of love. <laughs> 
for which it's probably helpful to find better language than conquest. But mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. and so there are many manifestations of that. You see some of that. Um, I mean, I happen to believe in evangelism, but I don't believe in evangelism tri- and triumphalism mm. being wedded together. Evangelism has nothing to do with mm. our converting people. Say a little bit. It has to be. Yeah, say more. <laughs> We're both like, wait, let's, let's yes. camp out here. Oh, okay. Oh, well, so, oh. yeah. It's it's interesting to hear you say, I, I believe in evangelism because I think, and, you know, this might be painting in too broad a brushstrokes, but in the Episcopal Church, in my experience, that hasn't been a strong emphasis or, or charism in, in the well, denomination. Nice yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of nervousness about this word and oh, what yeah. it means. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think it probably precisely because of what you just said, Bishop Curry, that so often mm-hmm. it has been married to a kind of triumphalist us versus them conquering other people. So tease mm-hmm. that out. What does what yeah. is good or healthy or kind of right evangelism look like in your mind? Mm-hmm. It's as simple as one person experiencing the spiritual journey of another and sharing those journeys together. Mm-hmm. And and where the spirit leads is up to the spirit mm-hmm. and not me. I've never converted anybody. <laughs> and I don't know anybody else who has ever converted anybody. Mm. It, that's God's work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's God's side of the equation. My job is to share their story. They share mine. You know, we share them together and see where the spirit leads us. Mm-hmm. That's that's our, you see, that's what that humility thing. It is not arrogant. It's not about me. I'm going to get you to know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. That's arrogant on my part. Mm-hmm. I happen to believe that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. That That's not the issue. The issue is the attitude with which I approach it and the attitude with which I approach you. If I make the assumption that you don't know anything about God, that God's not already in your life, Mm -hmm. that God hadn't been stirring. You see, that's an arrogant presumption on my part. Mm -hmm. And that's where we must, I started to say dehumidify, (laughs) dehumidify. I'm not sure what the right language is, but we need to de-arrogant eyes. Evangelism is not about making our churches bigger. Mm. Evangelism is about sharing some good news and hearing some good news. It is as much listening as it is sharing. Um, I happen to believe that, that you know, sure, church will grow. I'm not worried about that. Of course it will. Um, but that's not the goal. If that's the goal, that's a selfish goal. Hmm. You know, Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all folk to myself. He wasn't talking about filling pews. Mm-hmm. He was talking about inviting people to a way of life that was consistent with his spirit mm. and God's way of life. That that's the invitation. And, you know, there some folk will become Christian because of that. And some folk may take another route to be with their God. And that's fine, too. You know, evangelism is not about con- us converting anybody to Christianity. I mean, we've got history of whether whether it's uh, notions of manifest destiny in, in our culture, in mm-hmm. our country, um, which was used to justify genocide against indigenous people taking their lands or lands that they yeah. inhabited. You know, and I'm not putting us down as a country. That's not where I'm coming from. But the reality is that wasn't about Christianity. Mm-hmm. Christianity was used to justify it. The conquest of people, and here was the basis on which their lands could be appropriated, 
and potentially lives could be um, taken because they were not Christian. And since they were not Christian, they were expendable. Now, that is crazy. That doesn't have a doggone thing to do with Jesus Christ. I'm sorry. You don't have no, to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, it doesn't. Mm. Um, Bishop Curry, I, you're talking about some pretty <laughs> tough things that the Episcopal Church yeah. was part of. Um, well, the Anglican Church was really part of. And, you know, historically, the Anglican Church has been very white, very wealthy, and is really reckoning with a lot of that history mm-hmm. right now. Sure. What is it like leading that church as a black man? Hmm. Well, you know, in, in, in one respect, one could be anxious or anguish. In another sense, you could say, you know what? We've got work to do and we're doing it. Now, it's not perfect, but to be able to be part of the process of helping the church to discover its better angels, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's that's holy stuff. I mean, I, I mean, if our goal is... The realization um, of the kingdom of God's love, not only in heaven when we get there, but here on earth as well. I mean, what, what you know, John Lewis and others referred to as God's beloved community. If, if that's our intention, if that's our goal, then anything that helps us to reflect that more fully and to live it more fully is worth doing, even if it involves some sacrifice. And so for a church like ours, um, like the Episcopal Church, of course we got history. Well, the United States of America's got history. Um, I don't know about y'all's family. My family got history. Your family's got history. Any group of people got history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, my wife uh, is into genealogical research, and I sometimes tease her. I say, look, baby, you may not want to uh, climb up my family tree too high because I know some of them critters, and you might not. <laughs> you might be concerned about our children <laughs> if you keep climbing that tree. Um, that that's sort of that's that's just being human. <laughs> that's being human. Mm-hmm. And our churches are human institutions. And you know we've been chipping away at racism and chipping away and working at it. You know and and made some real moves. I mm-hmm. think that are that are really facing our past. And not just I don't mean just black white racism, but our indigenous our participation in yeah. indigenous boarding yeah. schools. And so we're facing into that, learning from it, telling the truth. Not to point fingers at anybody, but to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And then how do we turn? Mm-hmm. The word repent means to turn. It doesn't mean to beat yourself up. It means to turn in a new direction. So how do we join hands together and turn in a new direction? And if we can do it in the church, then maybe we can do it in the country. Mm. You know, we talk to a lot of people on this podcast who um, you know, are kind of in a process of deconstruction or re-examining the faith that they grew up with, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think we've even, Caitlin and I have talked about this, like the sort of choice that you end up with of like, leave it all or burn it all down (laughs) or like reform from within. And it seems like you've sort of chosen this, like reform the institution from within, be part of it, not burn it down and leave. So how did you come to that place? And how did you come to a place where you could see hope in the institution that is very broken? My deeper hope is less in the institution and more in the movement that Jesus began that sometimes has institutional forms. Mm -hmm. The essence of the church is a movement that Jesus of Nazareth began by calling a community of people around him who committed themselves to his way of love and life and his teachings. 
And they were, I mean, biblical scholars are referred to as the early days were a Jesus movement. Mm -hmm. And that is that movement, the life of that movement, the more we are in touch with that and part of that, then we will have life and have all sorts of institutional embodiments or or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, the church has been established. It's been disestablished. It's been blessing empires. I'm not saying that's all right, Mm -hmm. but it blessed empires and it has been persecuted by empires. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been, you know, it's taken all sorts of different institutional forms. It is not the institution that ultimately matters. Mm -hmm. It is that community gathered around this Jesus and his teachings and his way of love and his way of life. That's what matters. We've talked a lot about Jesus, which seems fitting. Um, one of our oh, yeah. colleagues said that Michael Curry likes to talk a lot about Jesus. <laughs> so, really? and, and so far, that's true. Okay, um, Jesus of love. So you're, you're, you're hitting it. You got me. Okay. So you mentioned, you know, we talked about evangelism as sharing one's journey, sharing those journeys together. If someone, if you had an opportunity, and I'm sure that you've had in like airports and many places for for you to answer the question, who is Jesus to you? What does Jesus mean to you? Tell me about your journey with Jesus. How would you answer that? You know, I mean, in all honesty, it's not complicated for me. I mean, Jesus consistently, you know, I'm 69 years old. There are times, there are parts of his teachings, there, there are moments when I don't want to hear that. Like? And don't want to do it. <laughs> Well, I remember some years ago, this was this is years ago when I was Bishop of North Carolina, and we were in a staff meeting and we were wrestling with, I don't even remember specifically, but but some situation in, in the congregation and 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 they had heard me say, you know, you, you know, I know that the question, what would Jesus do can be a little I, I mean, I know that that's not always the I get it. I mean, I went to seminary, I know that's not the most sophisticated and I, I get all the problems with that. And yet I have to admit, every once in a while, I do have to. It's helpful to think about: is there, mm-hmm. if not, if it's not so much just what would Jesus do, um, is there a paradigm in Jesus that I can apply in my life in this context? I think that's what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, one of the staff members said, "Well, what would Jesus do?" And I've jokingly said, "Look, don't bring him into this. I want to do what we want to do. I mean, don't don't drag, drag him into it. He's gonna mess us up. We won't get." There. And and I've had those experiences. You know, that's kind of a. I mean, we all laughed it off, but there's some truth. And there are times when what I think is the Jesus way mm-hmm. is not what I automatically, what I intuitively mm-hmm. think I would do. That was true. I, I mean, I'll give you an example. When I was bishop in North Carolina, um, when we uh, gave consent to Bishop Robinson to be consecrated as, as a bishop, um, as a partnered gay man. And I remember I supported that publicly and it got hot. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there was a lot of, um, it was a tough time for many. Um, I mean, not for me, nothing, but for LGBTQ folk, it was really tough to kind of have to hear some of what many had heard their whole lives, but to hear it so loud, um, it was just a, a, a difficult time. And I remember struggling. I had had um, training in nonviolent engagement Mm-hmm. And I remember actually one time thinking, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I want to strike back. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a side of me that wants to strike back, not to receive mm-hmm. and absorb and and try to love this person who is hollering at me mm-hmm. and calling me every name they could think of except one, 
to my face. Mm-hmm. And I remember that. I mean, I didn't consciously think of it this way. I don't want to do what Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, on the other hand, I knew it was right. Not for self-abasement. Mm-hmm. But that the only way that ultimately le- leads to both what is just and what is compassionate and what is healing mm-hmm. all at the same time is for me to humbly bow before you to stand in my integrity but to bow before you who disagrees with me. And if we can create that space, I mean, I jokingly said, you know, you got to learn how to stand for what you believe and kneel before the other all at the same mm-hmm. time. There's a part of Michael Curry doesn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound fun. I, yeah, it doesn't. And, yeah. I, and I, you know, we promised to come back to the divisions right now in the Anglican communion. And I guess this is, is the time to do it. But oh, okay. I mean, I think that's like a beautiful perspective. And I also see that right now the Anglican communion is like splitting. And there's, you know, a lot of churches that are breaking from Canterbury. And um, as you know, you are sort of leading a church that a lot of people are mad at about particularly around LGBTQ issues and affirmation and ordination. So sure. I am wondering what that looks like in right now and how you're feeling about this imminent schism well the the struggles that we went through and there there will continue to be strong i don't want to minimize that but by and large we figured out how to live together there were some who couldn't live together yeah. with that and, and 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 you can't force people that's not that's not the way of love either hmm. you can't force or compel um someone but there in the episcopal church today there are people who don't agree with um the church's position on marriage um, there, there are, and they're still here, mm-hmm. and yet they think there's some other things that are maybe more important to them, like the faith, like the work that the church does do. So there's room. There actually is room in space, and that's happened. I'm just talking about in the Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. We have periodic struggles. It's hard to hold that center. Mm-hmm. I, I do it. I'm telling you. It's not easy, but it can be done. It can be done. And so if I t- sort of apply that to the wider Anglican Communion— My experience is that there are provinces that disagree profoundly with us, with the Episcopal Church, and now to some extent with the Church of England, although I wouldn't blow that up too much yet, Mm -mm. because those who have expressed their disaffection haven't left. What they have said is that our relationship is impaired. Mm -hmm. They haven't left. So I think the jury's out mm-hmm. on whether um, on how this will play out over time, um, and um, we'll have to see. But I'm I'm not as worried about schism hmm. uh, because if we all function on the level of love and charity with each other, those who can do that can find a way to live together with profound difference. Hmm. And the one thing that Jesus was absolute about you shall love he got it from Moses love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself on these two hang all the law and the prophet that's Matthew John I give you a new commandment that you love one another as I have loved you you know what the average Anglican is a woman in sub-Saharan Africa mm-hmm. who takes care of multiple children that's the average Anglican, and she's not fussing about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, she probably doesn't have the time or energy. <laughs> no, she's got other things to do with. 
Thank you so much for your insights and just for spending this time with us, Bishop Curry. We're really, we're really grateful for this conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thank you both. It's been delightful talking with you. In the meditative spirit of Holy Week, I thought we could do something a little bit different Mm. and have you wash my feet. (laughs) Just kidding. We could end with a poem from Mary Carr, who I think is the OG Mm. of memoirists, as well as a poet and a convert to Catholicism. There's a lot of treacly religious poetry out there, but Mary's the exception that proves the rule. So who's going to read I think you have the better voice for it because some listeners have complained about my vocal fry. (laughs) And I literally just did it. (laughs) All right, let me give it a go. Descending Theology, The Resurrection by Mary Carr. From the far star points of his penned extremities, cold inched in, black ice and squid ink, till the hung flesh was empty. Lonely in that void, even for pain, he missed his splintered feet, the human stare buried in his face. He ached for two hands made of meat he could reach to the end of. In the corpse's core, the stone fist of his heart began to bang on the stiff chest's door, and breath spilled back into that battered shape. Now, it's your limbs he comes to fill as warm water shatters at birth rivering every way. That was so good. What a beautiful poem. We should do that more. I, for one, would be happy if we read more poetry on this podcast. Happy Easter, Caitlin. Happy Easter, Roxy. But first, Maundy Thursday. Like I said, I'm ready to have you. I'm ready to have you wash my feet. I'll be right over. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Windham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Caitlin Beatty and Roxy Stone. Thanks Thanks for for listening. I Um, I don't know what it means. It's just a Star Trek <laughs> reference. What is it? What's the sign? Oh. Live long and prosper, buddy. Uh, I guess we could rewrite it to live in long and looking to prosper here in New York City. I'm Roxy Stone. And I'm Caitlin Beatty. And our producer made us do this. 